Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On this week's programme, for many of us, the countdown to Christmas has already begun, especially for cooks and bakers, who may have already finished making the pudding and the cake. I'll talk with two Irish women, Martina Marr and Colette Scully, based in Birmingham. They've produced an excellent cookery book called Saintly Feasts, Food for Saints and Scholars. This week too, we heard of the death of former RTE choral director Colin Mauby last Sunday. Blanet Murphy, musical director of the Palestrina Choir, joins us to talk about his contribution to sacred music. But first, the Church of Ireland is commemorating the disestablishment of their church 150 years ago this year. Earlier, I dropped into Church House to talk with the Most Reverend Dr Michael Jackson, Archbishop of Dublin and Bishop of Glendalough, and began by asking him about the importance of this historic event. Uh, Disestablishment, I think, is probably self-explanatory once you go into it. Uh, The established Church of England and Ireland was what what is now the Church of Ireland was in those days. In relation to politics and religion, the two things walked and worked together. Now, you can see various strains and strands in Irish society where this caused tremendous tension. Uh, One of them was the lack of freedom to worship, uh, which affected the Roman Catholic tradition and uh, the Presbyterian tradition. The other was the limitation in the capacity to exercise your vote. The absence of those things today strikes people as entirely incredible. But we're talking about things like mass rocks and we're talking about, I think, the pivotal contribution of somebody like Daniel O'Connell. And rightly or wrongly, I've um, argued, uh, talking to other people, that without the work of Daniel O'Connell, there probably would not have been a disestablishment. Now, I say it for a particular reason. We think of disestablishment as setting the Church of Ireland free from its being linked and combined with the Church of England. And we have taken for this year where we mark, um, commemorate and celebrate uh, the disestablishment free to shape your future. But once people have um, the entitlement to cast their vote and to exercise an influence on the society around them, they're going to ask questions about their faith as well. So the connection of society and church, church and society, and how those things relate is something which came through. What happened in 1869-1870 was that the Church of Ireland uh, became independent from the Church of England. What does the Church of England look like? Well, we're looking at a church which technically has the monarch as the head of the church, something which derives from uh, the days of Henry VIII. But we all know that the head of any church, of course, is God Almighty. But we're talking about temporal arrangements. Church of Ireland really had to work on the basis of establishing its own structure at the time. There was one church elsewhere in the world which had already done this before we did it and that was in New Zealand and somebody was sent off on a boat, I suppose with a certain amount of pocket money, um, to find out what disestablishment looked like, brought back um, that wisdom and then we got to work on setting up our own constitution. And I'm thinking at that time, this would have been prior to a border north and south of Ireland. So it was an all-Ireland Church of Ireland. Has, has that continued? Well, it has. You see, the thing to remember is that disestablishment has got nothing specific to do with partition. Partition uh, was subsequent to disestablishment. So the Church of Ireland 
was disestablished for 32 counties. Um, and then obviously we now have a jurisdictional distinction um, with six counties and uh, 26. But it's the same Church of Ireland. Now you might rightly come back to me and say, but your every church in Ireland is a Church of Ireland. Um, but what happened, I think, is that the Church of Ireland, by having this opportunity to set aside its political expectation as well as affiliation, was free to engage. And I think that's partly why we have continued in the way that we have. I mean, there are, of course, tensions where people live in societies which are different. I mean, Northern Ireland is now, I think, about to um, mark a um, hundred years of Stormont, however that happens, and the independence of um, Northern Ireland um, after 1916. So that in itself gives an identity. Um, there is a particular and I think a confident identity in the Republic of Ireland ever since 2016. And I think many people, and myself included, would notice that there's a fresh spirit in that in this part of Ireland, uh, we are now into the second century of independent life. Being in that new position and established, did it give people an opportunity to stand clear from things that were happening at a legislative level and hold hold a morality or a faith that was different from that of the state? I think it did and I think still you will find people, if you talk to them, who find the um, kind of almost independent thinking, um, which is characteristic of the Church of Ireland, as something which they greatly relish. Now, my argument generally would be that total majority is a miserable place to live. A majority needs a functioning and a confident minority. But a minority needs a generous majority if it's not simply to be forgotten as something that is too small to contribute. And I think that in many ways, those who are coming to Ireland from outside Ireland now, people of other world faiths, um, identify a lot with sort of work that um, we in the Church of Ireland try to do, not exclusively, but they identify with us because we are a minority. And so minority status is not um, something pathetic if you work at it. You can actually be an appropriate critical voice and you can be in dialogue with people who are thinking through the next stage of majority status. Well, if you think of some of the major changes in Ireland over that period of time, including divorce, same-sex marriage, etc., all being part of legislation, how did the Church of Ireland inform its members when it came to guidance on, on topics such as that? In relation to topics such as this, which of course are always painful because there's no point being starry-eyed about anything really. You might as well start by being realistic. There would be people within the Church of Ireland, tradition is elsewhere, who would not want to see what they would call unwarranted change and others who would say change is coming too slowly. The way in which consistently we would approach that is that we would encourage people to follow their conscience on the basis of finding the best information possible. We would resist the idea or a sort of, um, I would suggest, unrealistic entitlement to tell people how to vote. Now, I'm not saying everybody does that in uh, any other context, but in our context, we'd be very clear. Uh, think it through. Um, make your best decision as a citizen. Find out the information, ask the questions and then cast your vote. 
There was a concern, I think, back 150 years ago that this disestablishmentism would have caused a split in the Church of Ireland. It didn't happen. No, it didn't. Um, And that's partly because I suppose we're a pragmatic church. Um, If we turn cannibalistic, um, it's not really going to help. And I'll give you a small example of that. Um, The Church of Ireland would have been the first uh, church in the four provinces of um, Scotland, England, Wales and Ireland um, to um, vote through, um, through its general synod, the ordination of women. What happened in Ireland is significant for a number of reasons. The ordination of women to all three orders, deacon, priest and bishop. Uh, That didn't happen in the Church of England. Um, It went first to priest and then subsequently they had to have a second vote on bishops. The second thing is, while there was a small number of people who in conscience couldn't accept this, no pressure was ever put on them to leave, but they realised that the structure that we have is that a two-thirds majority is required. The two-thirds majority was um, reached and nobody, as it were, fell out with them. And the majority of them continued to live and to worship within the Church of Ireland. And so that's part of the way in which we accommodate around a pragmatic way forward. Part of, I suppose, which lies behind that is we're not big and so we probably all know one another and that makes it slightly easier to shake hands and move forward. Does the title Liberal go with Church of Ireland? Not um, automatically. Um, I think part of our background is that the Reformation and the Enlightenment very much work together. So the um, freedom of the individual to make her or his own relationship with God is very important. But that individual relationship will take you nowhere because it will leave you alone and it will not build community. So um, liberal, I think, is a word which has become pitted against conservative. Um, And I'm not quite sure that's helpful in understanding the Church of Ireland. And I'm not quite sure that that polar opposite understanding of who people are is helpful. The important thing for us is to get back into some of the issues, and I'm jumping the gun here, that Archbishop Welby would have mentioned in his sermon last Saturday when he came to preach in St. Patrick's Cathedral. He talked about God's righteousness and God's grace, and he said, um, we all have to face the righteousness of God, but the important thing is actually to do the things that God asks, which is to defend the fatherless and widow, which is to um, engage with the poor, the marginalized, the migrant and the refugee. Now, his argument was addressing these things enables you not, as it were, to sidestep um, the righteousness of God, but actually to walk with God as God lives a righteous life in the world today and actually to engage with God around your own judgment. You mentioned the event uh, last weekend. What was the buzz afterwards? What, what, was, what, what got people's attention? I think what got people's attention, um, maybe I'll just explain what happened. St. Patrick's Cathedral, because it's the national cathedral of the Church of Ireland, was a place where two things happened in sequence. One was an act of worship, service of Evensong, involving the St. Patrick's Cathedral Choir, which is always worth hearing in any context, not only on Christmas Eve, but always worth hearing, uh, with the Archbishop of Canterbury preaching. And then a short time later, we had a panel discussion involving the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Mary McAleese, uh, David. McWilliams and Ida Milne around identity. The buzz, I think, was largely um, the accessibility 
of what Archbishop Welby said in his sermon and its applicability to our situation, that he was quite clear that the Church of Ireland, as he described it, and when you're involved in it, you kind of forget these things, uh, as a bridge church, which I think he then developed later on in what he said, a church that was without borders. And that obviously speaks into our current circumstance. It speaks into something like um, the whole dilemma around Brexit without naming it Brexit. But he was encouraging us not to lose that freedom to shape our future, which he obliquely uh, realised that the Church of England didn't have in the same way. He said, don't lose that um, around uh, areas where you could very easily get lost in the undergrowth. So I think people were delighted with the accessibility of what he said and the pertinence of what he said. Archbishop Michael Jackson, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. It was a delight as always to be with you. Next this evening, the death was announced this week of Colin Mobby, former RTE choral director. To remember him and his contribution to sacred music, I'm joined now by Blanet Murphy, who's been choral director of the RT Children's Choir, Cornanogue, and the DIT Conservative Music and Drama, and is currently musical director of the Palestrina Choir and the Polk Cathedral Girls' Choir. Blanet, thanks for coming in. Tell us the importance of Colin's contribution to sacred music and about the man himself. Well, Colin was what I classify as an idealistic musician. He never compromised and always had a very, very interesting way of of viewing things. He started as a very young chorister, Westminster Cathedral, and at the age of 12 was made assistant to George Malcolm, which is extraordinary, really, and was uh, then a director of music at Westminster Cathedral. I think it was from 1961 to around 1978, and then came to Ireland and was integral in forming RT Cornanogue, the National Chamber Choir as it was then, and the RT Philharmonic Choir. And he had a very, very great rapport with choristers. He had a very interesting understanding of choral sonority and the beauty of sound that you can get from a choir. Um, He's made a massive contribution as a person, but as a composer, he's valued right through America, Germany, Ireland, England, really all over the place. And really was always writing multiple pieces. Whenever I spoke to him, he had loads of things on the go and very enthusiastic and that was really that was him in essence he was always composing and thinking creatively about things now a man like Conan leaves leaves footprints and an echo uh, across an entire area and you uh, followed him into the corner nogue what what legacy had he already set in place at yeah. that stage well i was aware when i took over in RT that he he really had left a children who had a very very high level of musical expectation that he'd done some wonderful works with them he'd written wonderful music for them and there was something yeah they had a very very artistic sense of what being involved in a choir of that level was about which I thought was very very powerful and a great legacy to him in actual fact one of the pieces he wrote for Corner One Oak and for the Chamber Choir at the time was his cantata The Heavenly Christmas Tree and it just so happens that the in the Academy I'm, I'm director of choral music in the Academy and we uh, are performing that on the 9th of December and Colin Morby was to have come to that performance so I spoke to him just a few weeks ago about it so it's kind of poignant and lovely I think that we're, we're able to do that What did you learn from him? I learned that there's always many ways of thinking around a situation and I learned that I probably um, react to music very much as a performer he had that combination of being a composer and a performer and he always got a very interesting way of, of viewing music, of viewing the direction uh, something was taking. 
Uh, and I think that for me, that was very interesting. I always loved having chats to him because you suddenly came out thinking of things in so many different ways and so many different aspects that you really hadn't thought of. Um, very, very fertile, original mind. And I, I think it was always interesting to encounter that. Over the next period of time, people might be drawn towards his music. What mm. should they listen to? Uh, in the sacred world, the um, Ave Verum Corpus is really regarded as, as one of his masterpieces. A piece I love is the I Will Lift Up My Eyes for the Lord. It's the most beautiful piece for uh, upper voices and organ. Exceptional. He's written He's written so much, it would be almost hard to pick out. I, I would say it's many thousands of pieces. The Eroda Wondel Missa Caramea for us at the Pro Cathedral, uh, which I, I love and which I definitely will do in, in the near future as a tribute to him. Um, and he just there's an absolute plethora of choral works. Of course, the um, the Lord is My Shepherd was immortalised uh, with Charlotte Church and sung widely. Uh, it's being actually sung at his funeral uh, mass. Um, but the Avarium Corpus is there's something unique and special, and I think it's probably known the best in in the sacred music field. Brian Murphy, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Colin Moby's Ave Verum, sung by the Palestrina Choir. And the funeral mass for Colin Moby is tomorrow, Saturday, at 11.30 in the Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Whitefriar Street in Dublin. Finally this evening, two Irish women, one from Tipperary, the other from Dublin City, one a former nurse, the other working with Birmingham Social Services, found themselves, through their friendship, cooking lunch on Sundays at Manresa House in Birmingham for the Jesuits. They did this for over 22 years and during that time compiled many recipes that became firm favourites with the priests and brothers. And their work, fundraising amongst other things, was recognised with the awarding of the Campion Medal, awarded by the Jesuits in Britain to those who most closely contributed to their mission. Well, this year, working together with Father Dries van der Acher, they compiled these recipes into a book called Saintly Feasts, Food for Saints and Scholars. I spoke to Martina Marr and Colette Scully in Birmingham earlier and I asked them about the special shopping ritual they've had until recently involving two trolleys. Yes, we did our own shopping and then we'd shopped for uh, Manresa. They never budgeted us either. But you, you set a budget yourselves, I believe. Wasn't yes, there a figure yes, of a fiver ahead at the time? But uh, we never thought, well, this isn't our money, let's go and have a great time, and give them this and that. And You have got to think they're religious. We used to yeah. try and do a three-course meal on a Sunday at the most five pounds a head. That's a challenge, indeed. And we had, it wasn't small numbers, we had big numbers, because they always had visitors in, or retreatants in, and the community, and the novitiates, and that. And we knew very little about cooking. So we got out the cookbooks and sat down and tried out new recipes and tried them on the Jesuits. 
and we were encouraged so much by them because every Sunday after dinner we got a clap and a thank you and that was great. And apparently the Yorkshire puddings became somewhat of a, of a legend. <laughs> yes. Yes. But Simon Bishop, if we had a big group in, sometimes 30 people for dinner, and if we did a Yorkshire pudding, they'd be really big. And he'd hold it up and tip a glass for everybody to stop talking and look at us. And those days, Sunday lunches, they were the happiest times of our lives. The joy of everybody being so relaxed, so happy, so grateful, so thankful. And it wasn't anything spectacular. It was just what appeared on the table. They made such a feast of it. How did the idea for the book come about? Father Simon Bishop um, he's a superior come novice master. And on a Sunday after dinner, he would say to the two of us, why don't you write a book? And we would say, oh, no, Father, we do the cooking. The Jesuits do the writing. So each Sunday, it'd be the same thing. So in the end, we gave in. And then Father Dries took over the book really we only had the recipes to do and he put the rest of it into it and he made it what we would call an outstanding book it would be no book without Father Dries he's known to be very interested in saints and it's genuinely a lovely book to, to hold in your hand and we should explain that that Father Dries van der Acker has actually put a saint to every recipe yes. not the easiest thing in the world to do we never knew there were so many I never saints. I never knew there were those saints. Did you? Indeed not. And the next one coming up, I think, is uh, in November. Um, and and it's, it's a saint which has a, a dessert attached to, to him as well. I think this is Saint Clement of Rome. Yes. Now, what what is the recipe that you have with that? The lime marmalade cheesecake. Yes. Oh, yes. That's very good. Every recipe that's in that book, we have cooked over and over again at Manresa. Of course, yes. the other thing we should mention is the countdown to Christmas is on the way and I'm yes. quite sure that both of you have quite a good regime when it comes to uh, Christmas and the food that you would have put up for the for the priests in Manresa. Um, are we still in time to make the pudding? It's made. The pudding is made. <laughs> and the Christmas cake is made. You make the Christmas cake and the Christmas pudding at least three months before Christmas. I have made a four-pounder Christmas pudding and a 12-inch tin uh, Christmas cake. And it's uh, put away with plenty of brandy on them. What will you do on Christmas Day? On Christmas Day, we'll go to um, Mass as, uh, in our parish here, which is uh, the Augustinian priest. We go there for Mass. And then we go straight on to Manresa House. The minister, um, Brother Michael, and uh, an office who is a very good cook. Um, he, they will be doing, I presume, the Christmas dinner. And we will go in with the Christmas pudding and that. And we, we shall offer, which we did last year, to do the sauces to go with the Christmas dinner. 
and the red cabbage. Red cabbage <laughs> and uh, bread sauce and cranberry. Gran- cranberry sauce and all the bits and pieces. Brandy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and the brandy butter will be gorgeous to go with the Christmas pudding. And mince pies. And mince pies. Do you still both cook? Yes. Yes. What, what do you like in the kitchen together? Is is there war or peace? Well, uh, well <laughs> I like the ki- I like the use of the kitchen when Colette comes out of it because our kitchen isn't very big. But Colette will say before I go into the kitchen, give me now another 10 minutes and I'll do all the washing up and clean the kitchen for you before you come in. No, we don't have wars in our house at all. We have peace. Colette, your version of the same story? Yes. <laughs> I like to be in the kitchen together. She likes us together. <laughs> I'm now doing a scone book. Scones? Yes, it's 29 scones, 15 sweet and 14 savoury. 29 because next year is leap year. And Martina's birthday is on the 29th of February, Leap Day. Oh, that's very good. So, Martina, you're a Leap Day baby. Yes, I am. So that makes you a very young lady. That's right. <laughs> Next year, please God, um, on Leap Year, 29th of February, I shall be 92. Fantastic. Well, congratulations to you on that Thank one. You. And you can use either your leap year or your actual one, of course, when you want to celebrate that one. What do you both make of the news that the book so far has raised over €6,000 for refugees? We've oh. done £6,640. We it's never expected to raise that much. I never expected a cookbook that I had made to raise £10. Shocked at it. We're hoping the scone book will do as well. Martina Marr and Colette Scully, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith.